Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Yes, I did say Revelation. Turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read verses 9 through 20. And then chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. So Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 through 20. And then chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. starting in verse 9 of chapter 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like white wool or white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was shining like the sun in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam and taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can take comfort in the message of Revelation that your son is the one who died, but behold, he is alive forevermore. He's the one who has conquered death. He is the one who has conquered the power of Satan. He is the one who has taken the penalty of our sins. 
And it's He, God, who is alive forevermore. We know on the third day He rose again. And because of that, we are promised that what He tells us is true. I pray for our time and our word, that your word this morning, that you would strengthen our hearts as a church. And it's in your Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I uh, started taking this thing called Krav Maga uh, a few months ago. And if you, if you don't know what Krav Maga is, it's basically, not basically, it is the Israeli Defense Forces hand-to-hand combat. So I actually started taking this. Uh, and so the whole point of it is for you to be able to fend off a would-be attacker. So if the mere sight of my physical presence is not enough to intimidate somebody. I don't, I, don't get, I don't know why you're laughing. So if the mere sight of my physical presence isn't enough to intimidate anybody, now I am being trained to be a lethal weapon. So, <laughs> I'm not. I don't even know how I said that with a straight face. However, the, the, that's when in our class, and it's a blast, it's so much fun, you, you're wrestling around with each other, but our instructor, he always tells us this one thing. Listen, the whole point is what I'm trying to do for you is to encourage you and equip you in order for when bad things happen in this world, which they can and will, for you to get home safely. That's the whole point. That everything he's instructing us with, everything he's telling us to do, is in order for us to be able to get home safely. Now, we're going to be in the book of Revelation this morning, and so many people get so worked up and so confused and get, uh, try and put it together like it's a piece of puzzle, but the whole point of the book of Revelation is to instruct and encourage the church in the world it lives in right now. In other words, in other words, as we look forward to the end of Revelation, the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, here in the present, we live in a world where bad things can happen to us. Individually and as a church as a whole. Two things real quick. Revelation was not written to confuse us. It was written to bless us. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy, who hear them and keep them. Not only that, at the end of the book, Jesus says this in Revelation 22, 7. Blessed, or rather, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed are those who keep the words of this prophecy. So it's not to confuse us, or make us perplexed, it's to bless us. The one other thing we need to keep in mind as we study Revelation, we're not going to get through the whole thing today, but as you look at it, it's written to churches. John chapter, John's the author. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 is, write these to the seven churches. Chapter 1, verse 11, write what you see in this book and send it to the seven churches. And now the seven churches in Asia Minor, Roman province, they were finding themselves in a really difficult situation, a difficult time. 
They were facing the oppression, the persecution of the Roman government. Uh, they were being uh, forced into, or rather uh, encouraged to participate in emperor pagan worship. And so they're facing persecution from the outside. But not only was there persecution from, without, from outside, there were difficulties within the church. Just read through the seven letters. There is sexual immorality running rampant. There are people given in to full-blown paganism there is false teaching within the church this is what they're dealing with and that same thing that happened in the old testament time it happened in john's time and it can happen in our time but here we're going to get this great vision of our savior jesus christ who's going to make this promise to the one who conquers to the one who conquers, I promise to give to you eternal life. Real quick, let's just look at the structure of chapter 2, the letter to the church we're going to look at, and they all follow a similar, similar structure, and then we'll jump back to chapter 1. Um, the only thing that is reversed in some of the letters is the, is the last two things I'll mention here. But just look, chat, verse, third, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this. So they all start with, write this to the church of Pergamum. Then it's the words of him, Jesus, who has a sharp two-edged sword. And he identifies himself referring back to chapter 1 in John's vision of him. Then he says something like this. I know. Jesus knows exactly what's going on inside of his churches. He gives them affirmation. Uh, encouragements, and then warnings. Some of the churches don't get both, but here we have an encouragement, an affirmation, commendation, then a warning. Then it follows with, he who in the church has, who has ears to hear, down in chapter 17. And then there it is, the promise to the one who conquers. Whenever you conquer something, whenever you think about the idea of conquering, it means you've had to pass through something difficult. It wasn't easy, whether it's an internal conflict inside of you, uh, uh, something as simple as a difficult test. So you could say, I finally conquered geometry. I never did that, but some of you may have. I finally conquered geometry. I finally conquered having the courage to work up a girl for a date. I finally conquered my fear of heights. Whatever it is, you had to pass through something difficult in order to get to the end goal and aim. And so you and I, much like the people, the churches that he's writing to, live in a time where there's pressure from the outside, there can be difficulties from the inside, but what we do is look forward to and hold on to that promise that Jesus says to us, to the one who conquers, I will give you eternal life. So let's jump into our text. Back to chapter 1. Back to chapter 1 starting, well, let me summarize verses 9 through 11. We're not going to read those. John the Apostle is the one who receives the vision. I do want you to notice what he says there in verse 9, that he's their partner in tribulation. So he himself is facing difficulties. He is exiled to the island called Patmos. Patmos was an island. 40 miles in the Aegean Sea. And what that was, it was a Roman place of punishment. So those of you who were not uh, conforming to the rules, the laws, you were seen as a troublemaker, would be sent there. Look at why John is sent there. It's because of his 
on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It was his allegiance to the Gospel. He was worshiping on ch- church on Sunday. And he's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And behold, a loud voice came behind him. Now skip down to verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And in turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And the lampstands are identified as the church later on in the text. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So think about that. Jesus, the lampstands are the church, and where is Jesus? He's standing in the midst of them. He's in their very presence. It's one like a son of man is a direct quote, direct quote it's taken from, not necessarily a direct quotation, from Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel 7 says this, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, so without end, which shall not pass. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So this Son of Man has a dominion that's everlasting. He has a kingdom that will not be destroyed. And look how John continues to describe him with a long robe and with a golden sash. So a long robe, Jesus is wearing his royal priestly garment around his chest. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were like white wool. And I want to point out that word like. So John is just kind of painting a picture of us. This isn't meant to be taken literal. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. So he's full of wisdom. That's what Proverbs tells us white hair is. He's full of wisdom. No one can question the things that come from Jesus. Daniel says no one can stay his hand and no one can ever ask him this question, what have you done or what are you doing? His hair is like white. His eyes were like a flame of fire piercing our hearts and our minds to see what's in them. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar roar of many waters. Powerful. His voice, when Jesus speaks, things happen. Think creation. When God speaks, things come into existence. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. And from his mouth, listen, again, getting back to his word, from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Is that how we always picture Jesus? This is the great and glorious vision of our exalted Savior. Later on in the verse it said, Behold, I was dead, was dead, and now I am alive forevermore. This is the powerful vision of our great God and Savior who in no way can be domesticated. He is a warrior like Christ. It always amazes me when I hear people say this. When I hear people say this, that the God of the Old Testament was mean and all these kinds of things. But Jesus in the New Testament, uh, he became a little more temperament. I'm like, have you read the New Testament? 
Like if you actually read it, Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is the rider on the white horse who is coming to tread the winepress of the wrath of the fury of God. Revelation chapter 6, you can look at it. Kings, rich people, generals, all kinds of important people are calling for the rocks of the caves they're hiding in to cover them and fall upon Him lest they face the wrath of God of the Lamb. My friends, Jesus Christ is absolutely the friend of sinners. But He is not weak. Look at what John's response is in verse 17. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. It's like in Isaiah chapter 6 when the seraphim are flying around the Lord and they cover their face, cover their faces because they cannot gaze upon the perfect, perfection and holiness of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There was an uproar in our society um, in the year 2015. Some of you may have heard about this. I think it's really funny that there was... Um, a lion in Zimbabwe, and apparently lions in their jungle named their children, and the giants, the lion's name was Cecil, and he was causing all kinds of problems within the village that he was, the wildlife preserve in the village that he was around, and a dentist from the United States went over and shot and killed this lion, and people in the United States went berserk. Like, how could you shoot that precious little thing, this precious little lion? Somebody from Zimbabwe wrote, a pro, wrote an article in the New York Times, and listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. Did all those American signing petitions understand that at lions actually kill people? Did all the talk about Cecil being beloved or a local favorite was media hype? This is funny, Jimmy Kimmel and uh, late night talk show host. Did Jimmy Kimmel choke up because Cecil was murdered or because he confused him with Simba from The Lion King? In my village in Zimbabwe, surrounded by wildlife conservation areas, no lion has ever been beloved or granted an affectionate nickname. They are objects of terror. They are objects of terror. What people here refused to understand was the full nature, the full character, and ferocity of an actual lion. Yes, they look majestic, but I challenge you to drive them off the living treasures this afternoon and hop in the pen with them and see how domesticated they are. Let me know how, actually, we'll be doing your funeral. So you're not going to let me know how it goes. You're not going to, but here's our vision, as Vern Poitras points out, that Jesus isn't just our buddy. Yes, again, friend of sinners. Yes, forgiveness, but there is a ferocity to him. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. He is also one of wrath and one who judges. As we go to Revelation, look at the church at Pergamum, that's why it is talks about the sword that comes out of his mouth. He is a Jesus, a Christ who's powerful and mighty and hates sin and does judge. Just one thing I want to point out, and uh, I credit Vicki Ledgecue for this. 
our women's director, she put up a, posted an article and shared it with us. It was on the Gospel Coalition. And the title of it is um, Sisters, and yes, it says sisters, but a lot of this can apply to us men too. Sisters, Jesus is not your cheerleader. Melissa Kruger writes, there's a common trend among many women's events, popular books, and blogs today. Whether it's devotionals, that speak words directly from Jesus or women's conferences that focus on us on fulfilling a grand purpose. It seems we've whittled down the words of Jesus to only those of encouragement, support, and affirmation. We're comfortable hearing Him and one another say, you're wonderful. You've got this, girl. I will never say that. Just that will not sound right. <laughs> be yourself. You can do it. And to be clear, Jesus does encourage. He offers words of strength to the weary and comfort to the hurting. In a world where we so often feel we don't measure up, we need this encouragement daily. Yes, of course. By focusing only on part of this message, however, I'm concerned that we've reduced Jesus to a spiritual cheerleader. And in turn, that's what we've become to one another we offer words of affirmation, but not rebuke. Words of forgiveness, but not repentance. We rightly celebrate His grace, but often forget to mourn our own sin. In order us to be the ones who conquer, at the end, we need to have a full vision and a full understanding of our Savior Jesus Christ. Is he safe to quote Chronicles of Narnia? Absolutely not. But he is good. But he is good. Just look at what happens. When I saw in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I live am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So he died. He died on the cross, was buried, and he rose again, and he is alive forevermore. Now let's turn over to chapter 2. Turn over to chapter 2. And to, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. So again, referring back to the description of Christ in chapter 1, G John does this thing where he is speaking and using the description that speaks to the specific needs of the church that's being um, specified here. So right, the words of him who has that sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, it's his words, and his words bring judgment, but they can also bring salvation. Here's where we go. Let's start in verse 13. I know where you dwell. I pointed this out earlier, but I think it's, again, something we need to hear. Each one of these churches, Jesus starts off the phrase with, I know, I know, I know, I know. Jesus is completely aware of and understands the needs of His local church. He's not unaware of the things that are happening here at First Baptist Church. We are His church his congregation, he is fully aware of what's going on. So I know where you dwell, Pergamum, where Satan's throne is. More than likely, that's a reference to emperor worship. 
Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Look at this. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Look at this church. It's a church of courage. You hold fast my name. You didn't deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, when my faithful servant, someone who is faithful to me, not ashamed of the gospel, was killed, was martyred. And I don't want to just brush over this real quickly because this is a reality that many of our brothers and sisters face around the world. This wasn't a first century problem. It happens now across the globe. And just think about this because when we have the ability to distance ourselves from this, but let's not do this for, for a second. Just imagine for a second with me. Just imagine this. Antipas is your brother. Or if Antipas is your sister. Or if Antipas is the kid you grow up with. And Antipas is someone who sits next to you week after week in church or in youth group, and then next week the seat next to you where they always are is empty. And you know why. That hits a little close to home. This stuff isn't easy. Let's not pretend that this would be easy. But yet, in the midst of this outside persecution, this church holds fast to his name. They hold fast to Jesus. They don't deny his faith. And just, just let's think about this for a second. Right now, it's not a reality that you and I will be martyred in our, for our faith here in the United States. That day's probably coming just given church history. Maybe not in our lifetime. Who knows when? But there are things that we are quickly going to be willing to lo- that we better willingly, quickly be willing to lose Social status, economic prosperity, means of living. I just really think for those of you in business, um, those of you in public education, uh, you're on the front lines of cultural change, the the pressure that you're going to be faced with. And here, here's what we do. Remember the glorious Christ. And hold fast to his name. Because to the one who conquers, he promises eternal life. Let's move on. Because as I was reading through this, this actually, if you read this and you've never read it before, it actually can be quite shocking. Look at what happens. 13, you know, he knows where you dwell. They've been persecuted. They saw someone die, yet they held fast to his name. Then look at verse 14. But I have this against you. Seriously? Like, did you hear what we just read? That they held fast to someone, Jesus' name in the midst of someone actually dying. But Jesus says, I have this against you. We don't argue with Jesus' opinion. He knows what he's talking about and he's always right. And this is just going to show you the sharpness and the importance of this rebuke. Because just think about what they were just commended for and now what they're being rebuked for. Look at what he says. But I have a few things against you. 
You have some there, so in the church. We're not talking about outside the church now. We're talking within the church. Some there who hold fast the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Everybody knows about the talking donkey. That's Balaam. But the entire story in this Cliff Notes version is um, the Israel had grown very large. Uh, the Moabite king had seen that they were grown large. He says, I can't defeat these people. So he recruits Balaam to come and curse them. And rather than curse them, the Spirit of the Lord doesn't allow that. He causes Balaam to bless them. So Balaam does something else. It's a little more subversive little more seductive, causes them to first flirt with evil, then go into full-blown sin against the Lord. Here's what it says in Numbers 25, verse 1 through 3. While Israel lived in Shatim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And because of that, 24,000 Israelites died. Listen to Numbers 31, 16. Behold, these on Balaam's advice, so what he was telling them, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So they were enticed by this teaching and advice of Balaam, it led into sexual immorality and, and pagan practices. This was happening inside the church at Pergamum. Look at what it says. So some of you also hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We're not exactly sure who those guys are, but it's probably some, causing some of the same things it says right up there. Practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. They had the power to withstand seeing a brother killed. So you know what that says? Think about how powerful, subtle, and su suggested messages that seem quite right, that seem mostly right, but aren't. And what happens when they meet the world or appeal to the worldly desires of our flesh. Let me say that again. The subtle power of seductive teaching, even if it happens because it was happening in there, that was causing them to fall into sin because they were hearing what their itching ears wanted to hear. False teaching leads to false practice. False teaching leads to false practice. And so they had people within their church, full-blown paganism, food sacrifice to idols. I know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but here they were giving in the full-blown um, paganism, immersed in sexual morality, holding on to false teaching. And now look at what Christ's response is. Look at what Christ's response is. Verse 16, therefore, repent. Therefore, 
repent. And his call to repent, I want you to notice this, isn't simply just to the individuals, it's to the entire church. It's to everybody. Therefore, repent. And to repent means to uh, change your mind, change course of action, and then take the necessary steps to be walking in holiness. And he calls out the entire church. Y'all need to repent. Why would they need to repent of this? Because they were tolerating it and allowing it to happen. We would never do that. Let me ask you this question. Remember what we said about Antipas? Remember what we said about Antipas? How, what if he was your friend? What if he was your brother? What if it was your friends, your family members, people you're close to, caught up in wicked teaching and practicing these things? I've seen many, many a parent change their convictions about the Scriptures because of who their children have now become. I've watched it happen over and over and over again. This repentance is a gracious gift to us. And so what do we do with it? One, one, to guard against false teaching, we have been blessed with a a pastor who is out of this world gifted with a text of Scripture. Make it a priority to be here every Sunday sitting under the teaching and preaching of God's Word and you will be trained to sniff out things. I'm not buying what you're selling. That ain't right. When it comes to people within this church who are caught up in immorality, who are caught up in false teaching, Look, it is the most gracious and kind thing to do to bring the rebuke of God's Word to their life. And here's why. Read the rest of the text. Look at what it says. Therefore repent. Therefore repent. I'm in the wrong church. Not here, but in there. Therefore repent. <laughs> You guys can go home. (laughs) No, verse 16. Therefore repent. Here it is. If not, I will come to you as soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth, the sword of judgment. And here coming soon isn't the end times, it's now. He will come and make war against them. My friends, and you know who's going to win that battle. It is a gracious thing and a kind thing to bring pastoral correction in the lives and hearts of us here. Gracious thing. I do want to say this, and then I'll get to my last point. Um, and I think this stems from my time as a Bible college and seminary student where I would be in classes with and engaged with people who thought everything was like a fight. That's false teaching. No, it's not. Sit down, shut up. Um, I actually had to say that a few times. Um, I did that as a young man. Um, but here, here, just in way of discernment, um, here's the example I used this morning. That I'm not Presbyterian, but I love my Presbyterian brothers and sisters. If any of you are here, we're glad you're here. We know you hold the baptizing children as infants, and it's not for salvation. It's you believe they're part of the covenant people. I think you're wrong, okay? <laughs> but I'm not going to make war over that. We believe in immersion. That's not something to fight over. 
However, if we have people coming in here as missionaries from the world, spreading false teaching that's leading into morality, immorality, you have, here's your choice. You repent or you have to go, and we're not asking. That's not happening. You're not coming in here as an evangelist. Two, are they a refugee? Someone who has sat under false teaching, incorrect teaching for a very long time, and they come here hurt and needing people to come around alongside them and say, no, that's incorrect. Shepherd them through the text. And last, are they simply immature? Last, are they simply immature? So, missionary, you got to go. You got to go. Refugee, we want to come around you. We will call you to repentance. It's going to be out of wanting you here to share, share with you. Same thing for people who are immature. Now let's get to the end. We have this glorious Savior, 1, 9 through 20, who promises us to the one who conquers to bring eternal life. We can trust Him for that. Hold fast to Jesus' name when it comes to persecution. Be willing and have the courage to purify the church because Christ will come and make war against those who don't. But here it is. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The hidden manna, the manna came down to feed Israel. Jesus is the true manna, the true bed of life. If you eat of me, you will never go hungry. I will give him a white stone. This is something I actually learned this week that a white stone was giving as a symbol or rather a ticket mate, you could say, to give admission into a celebration or something that great that's going to happen. Christ is going to give you a white stone inviting you into the greatest celebration this cosmos has ever seen, the marriage supper of the Lamb with a new name written on it. With a new name written on it. Church, I don't want to pretend this is easy. I don't, want, like, I don't like to pretend. Let's not pretend this is easy. My daughter, um, Lily, who is celebrating her ninth birthday today. Um, my children aren't perfect, but she's close. Okay? <laughs> she's close. One of my favorite things I've been able to do with her uh, in the last few years is read through the Chronicles of Narnia. And we read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, we've read a few more of that, those, but The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the most popular, and it's one that has a movie out. And I told her, Lily, you have to read, we'll read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and when we're done with it, then I'll let you watch the movie. So Lily and I are reading through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you don't know the story, there's a character in her name, Aslan. He's a lion. He's the figure of Christ. He represents Jesus. And there comes a scene towards the end of the movie where Aslan is going to give of himself, sacrifice of himself for some other people. Sound familiar? That's what's going on. Aslan's doing that. And so as it comes time for Aslan to sacrifice himself, get sacrificed, he is, all these ugly creatures are tying him down, pulling out his mane, mocking him, spitting on him. And then finally the white witch kills him. So we read this, and then Lily knows that there's two girls crying around his dead body, and then two days later, he rises again and comes and saves the day. So Aslan was dead, but now he's alive. Fast forward, we're watching the movie a couple months later. We're sitting on the couch, Lily, myself, and my wife, and that scene starts to play out. And Aslan is marching to his death, having his mane pulled out, uh, spit on, mocked. 
and my wife, and I'm probably going to get in trouble for this. That's okay. Just bawling. Okay? Just crying. Crying tears. Like, I can't, I forgot how emotional this was. And then here's my seven-year-old daughter with a huge grin on her face. And all the confidence in the world looks at her mama and says, Mama, no, just wait. (laughs) Mama, just watch. Mama, just wait till you see what happens. And then we see Aslan raised again. What could give my little girl such confidence to watch something suffering all that suffering going on to a man who had done nothing wrong. She knew the end of the story. She knew what was coming. And my friends, look back to chapter 1. Look back to chapter 1. Verse 18. And the living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus Christ, our Savior, died, was buried, rose again, highly and exalted. So, you want to know how this story ends as we live in this difficult time, this difficult time? Listen to this. You live where Satan lives, where Satan's throne is? Guess what? I died. I rose again. I conquered the power of Satan. You have friends who give their life for my namesake. You know people like that? Guess what? I died and I'm alive forevermore. I conquered death. You have people in your midst caught up in sin. I paid the penalty for that sin, and I am alive forevermore, asking them to come in repentance, and I will give them forgiveness and grace. And the promise to us, to the end of the story, to the one who conquers. I know what you're going through. I know the difficulty you're facing. But because I lived, because I died, because I am alive forevermore, more to the one who conquers. I will give you hidden manna. I will give you a white stone. I will give you a new name. I will allow you to eat from the tree of life. I will cause you to be a a pillar in the temple of my God. You will have eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the end of the story. That's the promise to the one who conquers. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, You are so gracious and kind and You are so good. Thank You again for the book of Revelation. Thank You again for how it can encourage us in our difficult times. We love You so much. And it's in Your Son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.